Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I'm Rita Cosby. A New York district attorney goes after former President Donald Trump making him the first president in American history to be criminally charged, in this case on 34 felony counts. So is this a weak case that may not even make it to trial? Is it an example of political persecution versus fair prosecution? And what does it say about our American system of justice? Well, joining us now to discuss all of this is Brett Tolman. He is a former U.S. attorney a great prosecutor, a terrific attorney. He is also executive director of Right on Crime. Brett, great to have you here on the podcast. Thanks, Rita. Thanks for having me. What was your reaction to the fact that President Trump has now been charged with a crime, 34 felony counts? Well, Rita, my first reaction was I'm still unclear as to the crime they are attempting to articulate in the indictment. And what I mean by that is when, so there is a requirement, the Constitution requires that you put on notice an individual that you're going to allege committed a crime, and it has to be sufficient. And that notice has to notify them of what their conduct was, what the law is, and what the violation of that law resulted in. And we call that in the industry, we call that a speaking indictment where you describe the actions of the target and then you identify the conduct that is criminal and then you outline the law or laws that were broken. Here, it's not what we have. We have 34 counts that are different snapshots of the same alleged bookkeeping mistake or error. And we don't have an identification in the document itself of what the crime was that bookkeeping, that problematic bookkeeping entry was in furtherance of. So on its face, I think that it fails. I had had some hope that it might, you know, that it might be a serious exercise and a thoughtful, you know, approach to the grand jury and to real wrongdoing, but you cannot get that from this document. And it's offensive to anybody like myself who's actually drafted you know, document indictments, multiple count indictments. Were you surprised that it was that vague? I was stunned, Rita. (laughs) I guess to put it in perspective, every case that I presented to the grand jury, you knew the public was ultimately one day going to look at it. And this was just, you know, everyday average Joe citizen that had committed a crime and you were presenting evidence. And you really didn't want to be embarrassed when it was you know, going to be public. Here you have the former president of the United States. You would think if there was ever an instance that you were going to devote tremendous amount of thought, research, details, outline the scheme and the fraud in a lot of, in a painstakingly detailed effort to convince not only the judge and jury, but the world that you were not being political. That's why I I was stunned, because this is that one moment that with any other defendant, most prosecutors would work very hard to do that in their indictments. And here, it's the exact opposite. In fact, it weakened 
what we already suspected was going to be a bad case, it made it even worse. Wasn't that a big shock given, just as you said, this is a time in history to really dot your I's and cross your T's? You're dealing with the first time that a former American president is charged. Wouldn't you think they'd go over the top, that they would have much more meat on the bone? Yeah, the very first part of an indictment is the factual allegations. And that's where you outline the fraud, you know, the scheme to get away with something. And you'll notice when you read this that you can't identify lawful conduct from unlawful allegations. And what I mean by that is it's it's not illegal to settle a claim or to pay someone to enter into a non-disclosure. And there are many reasons to do that. And there were multiple payments made to a lawyer by the client without an identification of what the purpose of those payments were, and those were entered as legal fees in their bookkeeping. So you can't identify a felony. You certainly are are unclear whether there's a crime. And I would love to see prosecutors, if they're gonna go down this road, they're gonna do it in a way that's so careful that we start to back up and say, okay, maybe we still have some sense of lady justice being blind in this country and not caring who you are, but caring more about what you did and whether the law prohibits it. And this prosecutor is supposed to be, according to the Supreme Court, the servant of the law. But that's not what I concluded in reading this. It's offensive and embarrassing if I were Alvin Bragg. What does it say to you about justice in America? I've been, you know, trying to let folks know that over the past couple decades, we have been funneling power to prosecutors without shoring up our ability to hold them accountable or demand transparency. So right now in the government, the most important power that we give to any agent in the government is the power to take away someone's liberty. It should come with a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability. But what we've done is we have given so much power to prosecutors over the last couple of decades that they are fearless and they can make decisions like we're seeing now. And immunity, qualified immunity is going to protect them. And they have no no real concern about doing something like this. And it's going to be a problem and a problem for many years. Yeah. How dangerous of a precedent does this set for future cases, even unrelated, of course, to President Trump? Oh, I mean, Rita, that... That question is right now the most important question to be asked in this country, because we will start to see how powerful the justice system is. And there are already individuals on both sides of the aisle that are realizing, hey, I can go after someone like Donald Trump. I can go after someone that is a political enemy or unfriendly to the cause that I believe in. And where will it stop? Where will it stop? Will they care about the First Amendment? No. Will they care about any of the protections in the Fourth, Fifth, or Sixth Amendments and, you know, that due process affords us? They won't care because right now the goal, the aim, if you follow Alvin Bragg, his only objective was to get the charges. He knew that that was going to be his moment and the damage would be done and he would accomplish what he, he promised he would on the campaign trail. And he doesn't care at this point what the grand jury or what the jury will do or the judge will do with the case. That is a dangerous 
message. So you just believe he just sort of threw it out there, not mattering where it goes from here. Yeah, I believe that is what a lot of activist prosecutors have decided. I have seen trends of very, you know, activist-like prosecutors who are willing to ignore the law. So we've seen it in prosecutors like Chase Bodine in San Francisco, where he was he was refusing to prosecute crimes. And, and we saw it in Alvin Bragg, who was refusing to prosecute violent crimes. And so you see that their mentality now is, guess what? I can actually ignore the law when I want to. So why wouldn't they do it on the flip side and decide, hey, I don't really have the evidence to get Donald Trump. Multiple offices have reviewed it and concluded they don't have the evidence. But at this point, I don't care. I'll get a lot of damage done against Donald Trump and tie him up for a couple of years um, just by getting him indicted. You know, you bring up the irony that it is Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, and he is office, he has essentially reduced 52% of the felonies have been reduced under him to misdemeanors. And yet here is the opposite. Does the irony escape you, especially if you look at the history of this particular DA at a time where crime is skyrocketing in New York City? Yeah. And the other one that I need to highlight is my eyes, I guess, were really open to who Alvin Bragg is when he wanted to charge the bodega owner who defended himself against two violent individuals who came in to rob him. And it tells you all you need to know about a prosecutor who is willing to set aside, you know, the scales of justice, the law when it is convenient, and to make choices based on other factors. And what are those factors? He's already indicated that he sees racism as the most important issue and sees a system that has, in his opinion, violent crime is a product of bad policing or it is, you know, bad circumstances or racism that is being played out. And so he's making a policy choice based on those wrong-headed analysis. And that's when I guess my first exposure to this, and that was so foreign, Rita, 20 years ago, There wasn't a prosecutor, whether they were Democrat or Republican, that didn't take serious their oath to uphold the law without, you know, prejudice to one political party or one race or one gender, but was willing to just uphold the law neutrally as best as possible. You know, we know that Congress is looking into Alvin Bragg. And we know that Jim Jordan's committee, that's the House Judiciary Committee, he's the chairman there, he already had sent a subpoena to a former Manhattan prosecutor who openly campaigned to criminally charge Trump. This was another one, and somebody who also wrote a book. So there's a whole bunch of sort of like tied to Alvin Bragg. They also say they want Alvin Bragg to testify. Do you think we will see Alvin Bragg testify before Congress? Do you think they have a right and a legal oversight to be able to call him in if he used federal funds? So they do have the right, and they do have subpoena power. But here's the real problem, Rita. The enforcement of the congressional subpoena power is done by the Department of Justice. So if the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland doesn't want to enforce it, which is probably the most likely outcome, then Alvin Bragg can sit out there and refuse to come in pursuant to the subpoena. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. But, you know, then it goes back to politics, Brett Tolman, yeah, because, exactly because right. I look at the, even the example of like a Steve Bannon or some of these others who didn't want to testify. And look, they were arrested. Peter Navarro yeah. was arrested. But what right. Alvin Bragg gets a free pass? Yeah, I think he will get a free pass because Merrick Garland has shown he's absolutely willing to make his policy decisions based on pure politics. When you refuse to prosecute protesters of the Supreme Court, when you refuse to prosecute individuals that are destroying right to birth and life centers, but you're prosecuting those that are protesting abortion centers, it tells you all you need to know about Merrick Garland and his approach to criminal justice. And so to me, you know, you have Steve Bannon, who refuses to submit to a subpoena getting prosecuted, and you will see Alvin Bragg not getting prosecuted. Well, that certainly doesn't sound like a fair justice. What does that say to Americans who are watching, shaking their heads, saying, wait a minute, if you just don't like my views, what, you can come after me? That's right. It's disheartening. But look, I'm putting my hat, I'll throw my hat in the ring next Republican to be the attorney general, and I'll show you what it's like to implement the laws of this country without favoritism, without politics. And that's what we need. And I don't care if it's me or anybody else, but I would love to see when we have a president, next president, to start to reestablish putting in, you know, individuals that care more about the rule of law than they do about their politics or that we restore confidence in this country. If we don't do it, we will go down further and further into the depths of corruption in this country. And at some point, you can stoop so low that you can't ever get back out. Wow, that's really disheartening. And by the way, we would be in good hands if you were the attorney general at some point, Brett, believe me. I want to talk about the Trump case, too, because we know that his attorneys are planning on doing a slew of motions. They're, of course, still digesting the indictment, which just got unsealed, even though it was leaked all over the place, a lot of the details of it. But in this case, you know, they're going to, I'm sure, ask for walk us through change of venue, you know, trying to, you know, get the judge removed. I would assume the prosecutor trying to get them removed. Walk us through some of the potential motions that the Trump team will be working on in the next few weeks and months. Yeah. So I, before reading the indictment, I believe that the very first motion would probably be the statute of limitations, but I don't think so. After having read this, I think you have to file a motion that the indictment violates the Constitution and the requirement to put the defendant on notice of what laws they violated. I think on its face, it fails. And so they do need to file a motion attacking the indictment itself. I do think now it has come to light that the judge not only has a daughter that is working with the Biden-Kamala Harris campaign, which is a concern, but might not be enough to justify recusal. But we're also learning that he may have he may have contributed. The judge, this judge, may have contributed to the camp Biden campaigns. And if that's the case, then you may have an actual conflict, and that recusal motion 
may actually have some merit to it. And then the change of venue is a strong one given a lot of the dynamic, but that's up to this judge to agree to the change in venue. So we'll see. They could fail on all of those and it could go forward and then they would have to just appeal it, you know, appeal which decisions they could to the appellate court and hope that they get some relief. But I would expect those are the first three motions that they bring. Where do you think a change of venue could be? There are some people saying maybe Staten Island, which is a more balanced in terms of Republican-Democrat. Obviously, in New York, it's so heavily Democratic. Or maybe, what, upstate New York? Yeah, so the way the law is, once a jurisdiction recuses the judge, that it would, you know, basically they would assign it to another court. And it typically goes into sort of a lottery, basically, where it just, you know, gets randomly assigned. But they could ask Staten Island, for example, to accept it, and then they would transfer it directly over and all the parties could agree to it. There's also a recusal of the prosecutor motion that they could bring, arguing that, you know, there's a problem with Alvin Bragg. I would bring that as well. And if that the case, then you could also have the case itself transferred to a different, entirely different county attorney's office. And, you know, you could say, especially with the D.A. Bragg case, he campaigned. He literally he's in interviews and ads saying my priority is to get Trump, not necessarily criminals on the streets of New York and on the subway. But my priority, number one, is to get President Trump. Isn't that almost exhibit A for his attorneys? It is, and it should be de facto recusal or dismissal of the case. I mean, I never in my career thought I would see an instance in which an individual that's going to go in to be the top law enforcement officer in the county, having, before reviewing any of the evidence that is going to be received, identified that they want to prosecute an individual. I mean, it is unheard of. It is inappropriate. I think it's a violation of his oath, but I also think it's grounds for dismissal. But you know, we'll see. New York seems to be willing to do things that have never been done before in this case. And finally, Brett Tolman, do you think that former President Trump can get a fair trial if it stays in New York City? I've heard people like Professor Alan Dershowitz predicting that if it were to stay in New York City, in particular in Manhattan, that he believes, sadly, that they just have such a sort of hate Trump syndrome that he would be convicted and then it would go to appeal and he believes it would be thrown out on appeal. But he believes that there could be a conviction, even with a super thin case. If it stays with this judge, I think it is very difficult to impanel a jury that will be fair. I know there's individuals that believe you can put, you know, your jurors in there and using your challenges, you could eliminate those that, you know, would be unfair. I don't think that's possible, given the dynamics and given the notoriety of the defendant in this case and the judge. The judge would have to be willing to find bias more than he's probably willing to find in order to eliminate enough jurors to get to a fair jury. I think it would be almost impossible to impanel a fair jury. Wow, what a sad testament to the politicization of our times and our justice system. Will everybody be sure to subscribe and share this podcast? Wow, what powerful and insightful information. Brett Tolman, thank you for all you do to keep America safe and to fight for equal justice in this country. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Rita.
And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight, on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America.